0: Lord, I I just want to thank You for how clear, simple, and honest and beautiful Your Word is. I want to thank You, Lord, for what You want to tell us here tonight. And no doubt, God, You have something really cool intended for this time. So, Lord, bless it, I pray. Redeem every second, Lord, I pray. And make this night Your night. I pray, Lord, that nobody because hypothermia or whatever, getting in this cold, beautiful but cold church. Heat it up, Lord, I pray. And let tonight be one of those nights, Lord, where we just go, wow, how amazing are you, God. Develop our relationship deeper with you. Let us get you, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight is that would any, please don't just assume what I say is true. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your final say. Um, There are heaters up here, for those of you who are in the farther back, if you want to. And that's up to you. Um, Or you can find a brother or sister to snuggle with, but we're not encouraging anything weird. Anyways, the context, of course, for the beginning of the book of Samuel is that there is no king in Israel, and everyone is, is doing what is right in their own eyes. In other words, everybody thinks that what they're doing is right. So the problem is, is then the only person who is wrong is the person who says you are. Because after all, if you really think what you're doing is right, then somebody telling you you're wrong can't possibly be. But you can't have everyone doing what they think is right, everyone thinking that they're right, and having the Word of God be prevalent too. Both things can't coincide. Now, as we go into this chapter, I'd like you to look here for a moment, just for the fun of it. Look at the first verse, and let's compare it, by the way, to the last verse for a moment. The first verse of 1 Samuel 3 says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. This chapter starts with the people not getting the word. Look at the last verse of the chapter, verse 21, when it says, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Somewhere in between, there wasn't a widespread proclaiming of the word or hearing of the word. And this last verse where the Lord finally appears again, that the Lord reveals himself to Samuel. Now, please understand something. If we're really going to be kind of careless with words like appeared and such, we don't have that word being used in regards to God until this chapter the last time we saw that, to be honest, was in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, which means all of the time we've been in the promised land, we haven't seen this kind of uh, this kind of event. And here we're going to see something magnificent. But for us, it's going to be more than just kind of getting information, of course. In this, Samuel is going to get called. He is going to be called into ministry. And I'd like to challenge you to say, that I genuinely believe every Christian, that includes you, is called into full-time ministry. Now, that doesn't mean you all be drawing your paycheck from the church. We don't even do that. But it does mean that God has not called you to separate that which seems to be divine and that which seems to be ordinary, that which seems to be secular and that which seems to be sacred. God intends for your whole life to be ministry. But there are times where what happens is God makes clear that he has a specific calling on your life. Now understand the household that Samuel is in as we begin our chapter. He's in a household of an old man who by the next chapter, I shouldn't spoil too much, is going to be 98 years old. He's losing his sight. And it's in the house of two boys, Puncher and Serpent Mouth, who are doing horribly sexual things at the, at the gate of the tabernacle and are bullying people around for their food. That's the environment. That's not just the environment. That's the household that Samuel's dropped in as a toddler. And note, by the way, when we get into this chapter, what we're going to have in chapter 3 as we really have Samuel introduced in a lot of hoopla about his childhood, his, his toddlership, his babyhood, if you will. And then we have one, sort of, if you will, significant event when he's roughly 12. That's our event here. And then really after that, it's kind of like a man after that. We'll see that by the next time we see him sort of step onto the scene. That's kind of key because we kind of see the same thing with Jesus, of course. And that is kind of fun to see that play out here. Now it says this then again in verse 1. Now, The boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli or Ali, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Now, this is where we start this. We started with Samuel serving anyways. Even when it looks like the whole thing's a sham, he serves anyways. Even when it's widespread, the well, certainly, not only do we have these boys being really bad, but clearly even the mission of the priest to teach the people the word is being completely neglected. So even if the church, if you will, are here, if the people of God, the, the, the Levites, aren't teaching the word, even if there is sexual sin, we serve him anyways. Even if there is scandal within what's called Christendom, Even if there are money-hungry people, appetite-driven people that are often the ones who get the most profile on television, will you serve him anyways? Because God takes special note in the midst of a time when things are anarchy that there's one boy younger than every one of us in this room that God takes special note of because he's serving God anyways and he does it literally in the face of Eli. Like, in spite of what's called Christendom, he did it anyways. In spite of the culture, and I remind you, it was supposed to be the godly culture around him. These were God's people. And in spite of that, he served them anyways in spite of all of the horrible events around him, and what's even worse is the acceptable things around him, that he could have actually just looked like he was super Jew by actually being relatively not as bad. He served him anyways. That's how we start this. He ministered to the Lord, and that's why. Because he didn't minister to Eli. He didn't minister to the church or to the synagogue or, the, in this case, the tabernacle. He ministered to the Lord. And if you seek to minister to someone else first, they're always going to be faulty. But when you serve the Lord, what you find is, no matter how crazy things get, your standard is so much more than what is acceptable. And the world, let's face it, we go as man is as evil as you let him be. Bible makes that really clear. That's why we have laws, and that's why we have punishment for those laws. But we as Christians should not be driven by consequence, but rather by conscience. In Judges, by the way, because there was no widespread revelation, this issue of the presence of God becomes, in essence, a distant memory. Now think about that here in England. You know, it was less. It was roughly a hundred years ago that crazy things were taking place in this country in the name of Jesus. I mean, people were falling over—not in some kind of weird flop as a fish thing, but I mean, really, just throwing out their sins and their—and just really getting serious about the Lord and crying out and saying, "God, I'm so sick of this worthless." menial life that I'm living that's clearly not satisfying. I mean, crazy things were happening here. And then we took people from this country on this little island and we sent them all over the world and people started getting saved all over the place. This was the island for that. This was the place. This was the hub where the world was affected for Jesus because of it. But that was a century ago now. That was a century ago. And I, and I think about what Gideon said in Judges 6. As the angel of the Lord is speaking to him, and he says, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is really with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all those miracles which our fathers told us about? Didn't the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us. He's delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And that was Gideon's attitude around this whole thing. As Gideon, by the way, is being called into ministry. is, Hey, if God's really still here, why do I see all this? I walk through Camden and go, if God's really here and all the earth is the Lord's and the glory thereof, why are people acting like that? Because man's still evil. Well, you serve him anyway. Amos, by the way, in chapter 8 of Amos, it tells us in verse 11, that behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a famine of water or thirst of water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Because God says there's a day coming and God God certainly saw it brought brought to pass, but we see it even here that how many churches, if we were to take a survey and ask how many vicars believe in in the inherency of of the Word? In other words, that the Bible really is completely accurate. The last we heard that it was 2% at best. 2%. That's milk. 2%. And I look at this and I think, where are the people who are going to stand on God's word? Interesting, when you make it up as you go along, you may find something that seems really cute and cuddly, like a beanie baby, but you don't find the living God that's strong enough to save, but tender enough to actually be approachable. And then you hunger and you say, where is this God? Where are His miracles? Where is all of this power? I mean, I've heard stories I felt like maybe earlier in my walk, I sort of experienced that. Where is that now? Well, understand, then you understand what Samuel's going through. There was no widespread revelation because nobody was sharing it. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of the God moved. God's Word went forth. Then came light, and then came life. That's the way it works. And if we want to see revival in our own hearts or in the hearts of this country, when I say the same needs to happen, God's Spirit needs to move. His Word needs to go forth. There needs to be light to it. God needs to bring light to it. And there needs to be from that then life. So Samuel's serving in spite of all of this. clearly not what the boys of Eli or Eli are doing. And it says in verse 2, Now it came to pass... At that time, while Eli was lying down in his place, when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God <coughs> excuse me, went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called to Samuel. And he answered, Here I am. Now, I don't know if you noticed this. It's a bit poetic because God knows. I mean, Hebrew poetry is a lot different from ours. Ours... It's something that you should be able to put on a card and it should rhyme. But that's really not the purpose of poetry to the Hebrew mind. The purpose of poetry, to be honest, would be to bring greater light to something. And the way that they often did it was what we call parallelism. In other words, you take a situation and you compare it to another situation and compare it to another situation and say this is what they all have in common. And we'll see that throughout the book of Psalms, of course. But notice here, we see that poetry played out here as well, as God continues to underline this point. It tells us, by the way, that first of all, Eli, the priest, the high priest of the day in verse 2, that his eyes now had gone so dim that he had become blind. The next thing we read is that the lamp of God went out, or was about to, this is a spoiler alert, that the lamp of God was about to go out in the tabernacle. That we'll find out, by the way, in the next chapter, in essence. And we also read there, again, that the word of the Lord was not rampant, but rather that it was rare. And I get these three things and I get the idea here. Now, please hear me on this. We get the idea that if Jenny loses her sight, it's going to really change things for her. The way that she walks sometimes. Uh, the way, that she managed, the way that she kind of addresses people and the way that her hands will now start to go in front of her most of the time. I mean, it'll be a very radical difference. She really won't know where she's going without some new way of being guided. In the same way, we read the same about the tabernacle. In the tabernacle itself was just one big tent, and it wasn't pretty on the outside. It was covered in flesh. no well, animal flesh, but just the same. But the inside was so beautiful. And, of course, this is going to prepare us for Jesus. But in it, as you walked into this, this room that was called the holy place, and I'll come from your perspective, if we come in here, there are three pieces of furniture, and just three, and then this big veil, and then behind the veil was the Ark of the Presence of God. So we knew that if we, the closer we get there, the closer we're going to get to really being intimate with God. And these three items, by the way, in front of us was this altar called the Altar of Incense. Uh, now, the idea of it was is that incense was to be a type of prayer, and as it was lit, the idea was is the way that it ro- remember we're in a tent. As it rose and filled the entire roof of this tent, ultimately would start to come down, and, and you didn't just kind of light something and run out. You were there long enough until it came, until the smoke of that tabernacle, and the smoke of that incense, came all the way down and saturated your clothing. So when you left this place as a priest, when you left this time of incense, and by the way, we know people like, for instance, Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, J.B., he was one who came in to burn incense, if you remember. And it's like if, if you have done it right, you'd come out and people would smell it on you. You'd be like, you've been praying, haven't you? I mean, and can imagine the difference because you'd have this beautiful smell and this smell, by the way, and I love the fact God invented smell and there's such things associated with it. We can remember memories are pulled out of smell and reminiscence, emotions can be pulled out of smell. Well, this particular incense here in the center, this incense couldn't be used for anything else. If you even tried to make it, you could be killed for it. This was a very unique smell and this unique smell, you'd come out and it was like it was beautiful and it was rich and you kind of stepped out and Boy, like wow, you've been praying, and I wonder what it would be like if we had a prayer life like that. I mean, not just kind of came in and tossed out a little something, but I mean, I was like, I'm not going to leave this place until that's until the prayer of my devotion, till the the smoke and the incense that fills that comes back down and saturates me. So when I walk out, people go, wow, you're different, aren't you? But that was just one of the items. To the right was the table of showbread. And the table of showbread, once a week it was the idea, was that they laid 12 loaves on there, reminding us that God always provides. It was God's job to provide. But this, this tent had no windows, had one entrance that was always to be closed unless you were coming or going. And as it were the case, this thing would be pitch black if it wasn't for the item on the left. And that is the menorah or the lampstand. And what God tells us in the book of Exodus when He wants the thing made is that it was never to go out. And the reason was fundamental because if the light went out of the tabernacle, if the light went out of of the lampstand, you could never see to go farther. I mean, Once you got in the door, you'd have to crawl around and hope you didn't bump into something. And the idea is that one light was sufficient. It was all that was needed. That one light was enough to get you from the entrance to the intimacy. That was the point. And when that lamp would go out, there was no way to get there. And I get it. Now, look it. On one side, you've got Eli, who's gone blind, or he's going blind, and now he doesn't even know how where he's going. On the other side of it, you've got the lamp in the tabernacle that's, that will be put out because uh, ultimately what will happen, and we'll get there next next chapter, but what will happen is is that when it goes out, it's like people won't even know either. And again, they don't know where they're going. And then what we have is that the word was not widespread because the word, according to Psalm 119, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Oddly enough, doing what was right in their own eyes blinded them, took the lamp out and gave them the place where they didn't even know what in the world they were doing or where they were going. And the sad part is we expect that in the world. I expect that in the world. I expect people to give me the craziest answers when I talk to them about Jesus. I expect that. What grieves me is how many times I hear it in the church. Now, not ours specifically, but when you hear it from Christians and they're just making stuff up. Now, look it. Because somewhere down the line, we just don't want to look stupid, so we think we should have an answer. But a wrong answer is a worse answer than no answer. And here, God sets us up with this idea that this beautiful parallel, sad as it is, is that these were really dark times. They were dark times because it's the Word that, you know, I remember when I first opened up the Scripture and how that transformed me. And all of a sudden, I saw things like I never saw them before. Yesterday, I went and had my eyes looked at. Now, that's sort of required. They kind of threatened to cut my eyeballs out if I didn't kind of thing. And so I, you know, I go, all right, I'll go. And, you know, now it's like all electronic. I mean, the last, I I remember, I'm old enough to remember when it was just kind of like these little glass things they stuck on your face. And then they put other little things and it looked like something that I should be finding buried treasure from, you know, I don't know, like, you know, that's written on the back of the Constitution or something. But, but it's like now it's like this thing's like, it comes over and it's like and it's like and then they're like what can you read and i'm like nothing and they're like oh oops okay wrong one and then they put in the right <laughs> prescription but it was interesting to me it's like that's how i saw the world but when you don't know better it's just the world it's just the way it is things oh everything's fuzzy and then all of a sudden God does this beautiful spiritual laser surgery on your in the inside of your eyes. And then you're like, Oh my goodness, I see things like I, I, I see things in a way I've never seen them. And we've seen these videos, I don't know if you've seen them lately, they've developed these glasses for people who are colorblind. And they start to cry. So they've never seen colors and they hear other people speaking about them, but they just can't see them. And all of a sudden, they put on these glasses, and everything seems so different. God says, this is how it starts. Now, here's the good news. I've already given you the end as a spoiler, so you know that's not how it's going to end. What's interesting is how we have to get there. So, it's nighttime. It's nighttime, and what we'll read is, fat old Ellie is taking a nap he's going to sleep for night. And so is Samuel. Samuel's found his place to lay down. And it says in verse 4 then, that the Lord called to Samuel and He answered him. God has now come calling. And I wonder if there is ever a time where we're quiet enough to hear Him. You know, we get ourselves clogged. It's like we're afraid of Silence. It's like audible darkness. You know, kids, when they're young, they're afraid of the dark. And I think somewhere down the line, we get to this place where we're like afraid of the of the audio darkness. You know, these days, I find myself, for whatever reason, maybe because things get so crazy around me sometimes, that I find I put in my headphones, and I, but I don't turn anything on. And I find myself doing it a lot these days. And then I'll start reading my, reading the word more, and maybe I just get into a place where I I can't. I mean, I remember when it was like, I could crank music and still read and really understand it clearly. These days it's a lot more work. And so, there's something about that. And and I can be on a train, an off dam or a bus or whatever, and just having the headphones and kind of quiets things a little bit. But it's not good enough for me when it needs to be like, God, I know you need to speak to me, and I need to, I need to get quiet. And I found that even in my own house, you know, being being a married fella, I can't just lay awake in bed at night because sometimes my wife's not that quiet. So I I find myself getting up and kind of getting downstairs, sitting in my office, and Lord, I just I just want to hear you. It tells us, by the way, in Romans eleven twenty nine that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God's never going to change his mind. If he's put a calling on you, and I'm sure he has, whatever the calling is, he will never take it back. Here, God is calling him. Now, interesting, when people like to argue about the sovereignty of God and how God picks people for this or that, if you, I challenge you as Bible students to take a look at how many times it pertains to your calling and not salvation. I didn't choose to become a pastor. That was God's choice. I'm thankful. I'm very, very thankful. I've never for a second regretted it. Never for a second. I absolutely love what I get to do. But I didn't pick it. God just knew better. And God now is calling Samuel. So God calls Samuel. It says here that the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel said, Here I am. It says in verse 5, So we ran to Ellie. <laughs> and he said, Here I am. For you called me. And he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. Now, I don't know how you are when you get woken up in the middle of the night and there's not some form of emergency attached to it. But I, I'm sorry, but I kind of hear it like he's being a little grumpy. But just the same. But there's something fascinating in this because the way that the Lord spoke to Samuel must have been so intimate and so familiar and so unfearful that Samuel, all Samuel could think of was actually to go to Ellie because it must have been him. So imagine the Lord's like, Samuel, Samuel, And Samuel pops up, here I am. Now, imagine if, if Ellie isn't hearing the Lord speak. So all of a sudden it's like totally quiet in the house, you know, and from another room you hear, here I am. I mean, he's like 12, so his voice is cracking. And then he gets over and he opens the door and he's like, you call for me? And you're looking at him going, what's wrong with you? Go back to bed. I didn't call you. You can imagine Samuel's like, uh, oh, okay, okay. So he lies down again. Verse 6, it says, and the Lord called yet again. Number two, Samuel, nothing different. Samuel arose and he went to Ellie again. Here I am, you called me. And at this point, you imagine Samuel's like, imagine Ellie's probably thinking, this is a sick joke. Now he says, he answered, I didn't, I didn't call my son. Lie down again. He's trying to be compassionate, if you will. And it tells us in verse 7. And note this verse because it's pivotal for the rest of the chapter. Samuel, listen, did not yet know the Lord. Nor was the word of the Lord revealed to him. Samuel is in a priest's house and he isn't getting the word. And because he's not getting the word, when God speaks, he doesn't recognize it's God. You know, it's really cool because God makes really clear why he wants us in his word. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I'll give you a couple here. But this chapter is fundamental for this. Samuel's dropped off, let's just assume, roughly between two and three years old. It was after he was weaned by his mother. That all depends on how long that happened. But let's just say for the sake of it, between two and three, and he's now roughly 12 years old. That means he's been in that house for nine years. Very formative years, mind you. And in all of that time, nowhere is he getting the word. Isn't anywhere where he's getting it and going, oh, when God's, that's clearly God's voice. But God, notice, correlates the two it tells us he didn't even, God's like, he didn't even know me because he really, he's never been in my word. It's like, how are you going to know me if you don't know, if you're not in my word? So follow me on this quick jump for a moment. In Romans 10:17, it tells us that faith comes by hearing and not the word of God. Right now, as God's word goes forth, God is instilling in you greater trust. Now, you can choose what you want to do with it. I challenge you to choose wisely. But as this Word goes forth, God is, is investing in you greater faith. In 1 Peter one twenty three, it says that you were born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Our being born again comes through the Word. In 1 Peter, the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Now that you've been born again, born not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, it says, Now, as newborn babes in Christ, desire the pure milk of the word that you would grow thereby. Now, from the moment a baby's born, it is fundamental that that baby get fed. And the best, of course, would be to be fed by his mother, her mother. The connection is intimate, but also, as the reports go out, what it does to your immune system is essential. Many people who have not had that experience as children, as babies, find themselves in places of really great allergy problems, autoimmune problems of other sorts. Digestive problems, functional problems, brain function problems. So much takes place during that time. You wouldn't just have the baby and then say, well, let this thing fend for itself. In a few years, it's going to grow big enough to make its own meal. But the problem is when people give their life to Christ, we tend to think, well, what you need now is another experience Or you need to just be part of a club or just hang out with people and maybe by osmosis. But you can put a baby in a room with a bunch of other babies. It'll act like a baby. It'll cry and poop and all that other stuff. But it won't get strong and healthy without being fed. And God says, my word's got to do that. And you say, well, I started reading the word and I don't get it all. Of course not. You know, when babies eat, they don't get it all either, do they? That's why moms wear bibs. They have that blanket they put over their shoulder. And then they hand you their baby just about the time when it's about to barf on you. And they know it. I know they know it. And what that baby's saying is that the body's still not digesting at all, but it is digesting. When you're in the shower, chances are you're not, if you do, this is a really sick thing, but you don't try to drink all the water that comes out of the top. top. But it's washing you. And you're like, well, what if some of the water doesn't get me? Some of it's going to miss me. Probably. But it's still going to wash you. There's the point. And as we continue to walk through God's Word, what we find is we continue to grow, we continue to develop, and we continue to be amazed at what He does as a result of it. So as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word that you would grow thereby. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14, as God starts to speak and tear apart how what it's like as a child, but then you become a young man, like an adolescent. He says, I write to you young men because you are strong, You've overcome the wicked one, and the Word of God lives in you. I mean, it gets to become more than just now, just kind of getting a little something try to try to keep yourself going. But now God's Word starts to live inside of you. And the difference between the Bible and, and every other book is fundamental. In any other book, you kind of crawl in it maybe for a little bit, and you dance around with the characters. But sooner or later, you put it down, and there's sort of the the whispers and echoes that still remain, and that's about it. But the Bible, when you open it up, it comes and lives inside of you. Because the Word is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow and soul and spirit, discerning the intent thoughts of our heart. That's what it tells us in Hebrews. God's Word is not just a cool book. It's a living book, written by a living author. In 1 Timothy 2.15, by the way, it tells us then, as we, become, as we grow from babes in Christ to young men, and, the, and what typifies a young man is his strength, and what that strength comes from is the Word of God living in us. But then it says to be diligent in Second 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. When we become men, one of the things we find is we're no longer tossed to and fro by the cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful plotting and their their schemes. But we rightly divide the word of truth now. And we train our senses by it. So that we know this is true and I'm going to be governed by this. It's such a big deal that by two chapters later, when Paul is about to kick off the scene and he tells Timothy, he says in 2 Timothy 4, he says this in verse 4-2, he says, Timothy, preach the word. He doesn't just say teach it. Teach it means inform people. Preaching means do it in such a way that they are brought to make choices as a result of it. It tells us, by the way, in Isaiah 40, verse 8, that God's word will endure forever. In Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11, it says as the snow falls down to the ground and doesn't rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing the ground to bud and to flourish so it would ultimately bring seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. God says, that's just like my word. There's the parallel. He says, my word never returns back to me empty. When the snow falls, it never returns back empty. When the rain falls, and we certainly get a good portion of it here, it doesn't come back empty. To the, to the sky empty. It does. It serves a purpose. It says, so does my word. It will never return to me void. It tells us, by the way, that God in, uh, in Psalm 138.2 chooses to honor His word even over His name. That tells me something. And here's a whole nation without the word. A whole nation where you ask, well, who is God? And you're like, well, I kind of think He's kind of like this. He's kind of like something between, I don't know, like kind of a -a Build-A-Bear and Jimmy Kimmel. Or, you know, he's kind of somewhere between, I don't know, on a good day, he's probably like, I don't know, somebody like maybe Harry... Or Prince Harry, and on a bad day he's like Trump. I mean, people come up with whatever ideas they come up with, but it's always, when you kind of see their head, their head kind of tilt back, their eyes kind of roll back, and they're accessing the creative parts of their skull, you know, and they're kind of like, well, I think God is kind of like a caterpillar. And it's like, well, I'm really curious to see how you work this one out. But the sad part about this, and please hear me, because he was not in the Word, Now, in this case, God's not faulting him for it. If he was faulting anyone, it certainly would be Eli, because that's whose household he's in. But it's like, because of that, when God speaks, he doesn't even know it's God. He, of course, just assumes it's Eli, because it's the one man that he's comfortable with, that he's intimate with in no weird way, that he has some form of relationship with. So, clearly, when God comes here, though his voice could splinter the cedars of Lebanon, I mean, what's clear is God speaks in such a way that was unintimidating and unfrightening to a boy. I'm very thankful for that. And he will speak in a still small whisper if we're willing to listen. So Samuel got up a third time because God spoke, but he didn't know it was the Lord. He thought it was Ellie. And imagine how confusing this would be for Samuel. God's constantly trying to speak to him. And Ellie keeps getting up and talking. to or Samuel keeps going up and talking to Ellie. And Ellie's like, will you go to bed by now? Or what's the deal? Is there What did you eat last night? What did you watch? Three different times he's kind of come in and he's like, hey, you called me, right? And he's like, you did call me, right? And then the third time he's like, so, what's up? Are you calling me? Finally, it seems like Ellie's kind of catching on here. And it says then, Ellie perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore, Ellie said to Samuel, go lie down. This is our fourth time. Fourth time's a charm. It shall be that if he calls you, you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's so much more than just talk to me. When we, because we learn how to pray from usually Christian culture, we tend to learn to be a, sort of like a drive-thru. As long as we can get out all of our needs... We've kind of done a good prayer. But imagine any friend of yours that the only time they talk is when they talk at you and they tell you what they need and then they're gone. What kind of friend would that be? So when when Ellie's kind of here, he's like, hey, you know, it kind of sounds like God's going to say something. It sounds like God's trying to get your attention. But I, because you're kind of not as familiar in the word, what's clear is you don't even realize it. Well, I think what you should do is make sure that you tell God that when you do speak, please do speak. But I would, I'm willing to obey. That's the point. So, here's the beauty in it. Verse ten. Samuel went down and laid in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called as the other time, as at other times. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This wasn't just God kind of piercing the silence with a voice. The Lord came and stood in His room. Now, God doesn't have to do that. God could have come as a turtle. God could have come as a blob. He could have come kind of like Big Hero 6, whatever that guy's cool thing's name is. But he, but he, Baymax. But, but he didn't. And God dwells in an approachable light. Jesus dwells in an approachable light. God could have come in there and blown the doors off of the whole place by His light alone, but He didn't. Somehow He got in there in such a way that He didn't want to scare the boy. But imagine, three different times, He's kind of like, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel gets up and he walks out of the room. And you can see God just going, I'll wait. And he comes back down and He lays back down. Oh, that was weird. It's like, hey, and he gets up, oh, he called me! And he walks back over. And imagine here's God watching this whole thing, and we're walking right past him. And this is what happens, by the way, when we're not at the place where it's like, God, you know what, I, I really want you to speak to me because I really want to follow you. I want to know you. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. And in here, God, I mean, God, God shows up again, and it's the fourth time. Now it's the same as a little prime. He's got a little, he's got a script. So the Lord's like, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answers, Would you freak out if you were Samuel at this moment? In all of Samuel's time, what does he know about the Lord? Well, he's probably been told this story by his mother when he was still being weaned Sammy, you're a miracle baby. I prayed, and God gave me you. And I'm going to give you to the Lord for the rest of your life. And you get handed over to a guy that's old and fat and can't see, and a couple of kids that are punks. You're like, wow, this is really weird. This politic doesn't look like anything I understand God to be. Not the God who blessed my mom like that. And the Lord says to Samuel in verse 11, Behold, hey Sam, check this out. I will do something in Israel at which both the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. God's like, I'm going to do something so out there. I remind you in the last chapter, a prophet, we don't even read what his name is, a man of God showed up, and he already told Ellie, man, you know what, you should have been changing your boys, you should have been dealing with your boys, but because you honor them more than me, you guys are done. God says now, Samuel Check this out. I'm going to do something. and I'm going to let you in on a little bit of my, what I'm about to do. Now, understand, hear this. God is appearing to Samuel, a 12-year-old kid. That's, that's my youngest. And saying, hey, I want to let you in on what I'm about to do. And he says then in verse 12. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons have made themselves vile, and they did not restrain them. Now, please hear me in this. God makes really clear one of the ways that he develops and may improves himself above everything else that people invent and call God be it statues or something esoteric or something behind a veil or a wall or a screen or whatever, is that God says, I say things and I make them come to pass. Ezekiel twelve twenty five says, I'm the Lord. I speak and the word in which I speak will come to pass. That's just that simple. And Isaiah 41, verse 4, it says, Who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, I am the first and with the last, I am He. Isaiah 41 verse 23, and God's presenting his case because people are worshiping other things. He says, Well, let those guys show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's, whether you do good or evil, that we would be dismayed and see it all together. Isaiah 41 26, Who is declared from the beginning that we may know? Former times that we may say he is righteous. Isaiah 41 verse, 42 verse 9, Behold the former things that have come to pass. And the new things, I declare before they spring forth, I tell you. So when some guy shows up and goes, you don't understand, I'm the new prophet. Tell him, sorry, we're a non-profit organization. You know, and then the reason is because God makes clear, everyone that I have coming, I'm going to tell you ahead of time. I'm God that isn't restricted to the, the laws of mankind. I set those in order. So hear me in this. There's two ways that God can speak to me. The ways in which I'm not really sure that it's really him. You know, he speaks to my heart and I'm like, God, I really think that's you. Now as we get older and we get in his word, we get, okay, I really do believe this is consistent with your character. I know you know how to speak in ways I can understand. I can get it. But you know, it's like when God puts a promise on your life, you're kind of after a while, if things don't come to pass right away. You're like, wow, well, did the Lord really speak that to me or not? And that's kind of iffy. And then there's the way that God speaks to me that I can be absolutely sure is Him, and that's His Word. When God puts a promise to me in His Word, it's undeniably clear. And it's undeniably going to come to pass. And if I start with those, and I know that what's, that is what God's promising, those are His covenants, well, then I can start there. And then when God starts to add on to that, I can say, well, that is completely consistent with where you're already going. I get that. So he's like, look at, you know what I'm going to do, Sammy? I'm going to fulfill my vows just like I promised. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli and to the iniquity of Eli's house that he shall not be atoned for his sacrifice or offering forever. By the way, that's what he promised in the last chapter. This whole thing, by the way, where Eli's family will ultimately just kind of drop, it'll go all the way to 1 Kings 2.27, where Solomon will remove Abiathar from being priest. And, and that'll be sort of the end of that line. He says, "Look at I told him, verse thirteen, that I will judge his house for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves so vile and he didn't stop them. So therefore, I'm going to do it. Now you have information. What are you going to do with it? Could you imagine the pressure on this twelve-year-old kid? He has to go tell basically a surrogate father, Ellie. Oh yeah." All that stuff that God said he was going to do, killing your kids and, and, you know, all of that, and how you're never really going to have anybody really get old except the guys that do live are going to just make your life worse. Well, yeah, God's going to bring that to pass. But it says, Samuel laid down until morning and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, which tells me, by the way, this is one thing, and I see how beautiful this is. God's got, this is a guy who's opening the door so that, people, so that people could come in and worship. I wonder who was closing them. Samuel was afraid to tell Ellie the vision. Wouldn't you be? And Ellie calls Samuel and he says, Samuel, my son. And he answers, here I am. Now notice, Ellie's call is intimate. My son. Samuel's response is the same. He said all the times that the Lord spoke to him. Yeah, here I am. Samuel, my son. Verse 17, he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please don't hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Do you kind of get the idea that is he has a hunch that it's going to be a bad? He's like, look it. Whatever God said he was going to do, if you don't tell me, it's going to happen to you, buddy. And then I get the idea. Well, if it was sort of like God wants to bless you with a lot of things, I think at that point I wouldn't want to tell him because then it could happen to me. But, but in this, obviously, he kind of has a hunch it's going to be bad. So it says now you're at that place now put yourself in his shoes let's say you're 12 years old you're 12 years old do you do it? do you you, you tell him? I found we're definitely in a culture where we just don't want to tell people what what we need to tell them we'll happily hear them and they'll think we're their best friend but we won't tell them what they need to hear Interesting, because there have been several cases where I've watched people not tell a person what they should, but then behind closed doors, rant and rave about it to people that have no purpose hearing it. And it's so sad. Where are the people that will actually stand up and say, hold on, before you go any farther, that's just flat out wrong, and you need to, you need to shut that down before you get any farther with it. Because unfortunately, you've probably heard the term silence is complicity. When we are silent, we become an accomplice to the problem if we're not really willing to stand out. But let's face it, how many of us in this room really are confrontational? And this kid, he's there now. God's told him, hey, look, and I'm going to do something and I'm letting you know ahead of time, Sammy. Why is he letting him know? Because ultimately Samuel's the one who's going to have to step into place, much like David to Saul. But I remind you, this ends on a really positive note. What does it take For God to start appearing again. What it takes is the backbone, to be honest. To hear God's Word and do it. Verse 18, Then Samuel told him everything. And he hid nothing from him. Ellie's response, It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. God had already promised in the last chapter. Now He's confirming it. And all of a sudden, everything starts to change. See, there were those that could have been reading the Word, but nobody was sharing it. There were those who could have been hearing, but they weren't going to share it. The Word was not widespread at all, but it was rare. When was the last time you sat and talked about the Word of God with anyone? When was the last time I did you put a bunch of Christians in public, how would we know? How would we be any different from what's around us? What would they see? Would they see because we're just nice? You know, what drew me to Calvary Chapel initially was how driven they were to the Word. We now. And how quick it was on people's lips. I don't see it a lot now, but then I don't, I'm not around environments where I could. But when, when you hear, some of you, do you remember the first time you sought to give counsel to someone because they sought you out and the Bible came out of your mouth? And you thought, oh, this is cool. You know it's good counsel when it's that. And you think, oh, this is cool. And I remember, man, I'm like, okay, now that I'm learning all about God through this beautiful book, I want to use this book right. I want to be able to take this, this book. And it's not like I'm making an idol out of the book. It's still God is the one who wrote it. And I'm still, the whole point is that he's the end I'm seeking. And in this, like, God, I want to know you better and I want to know me better and I want to know my call better. And I want to be more equipped and I want to be more right and ready for the things you call me to in this. And I want to be able to, when someone comes with a need, I want to be able to offer them the right answer. I want to be able to really help. Sometimes the, the hardest medicine is when you just got to tell someone the truth. Samuel grew, verse 19. And the Lord was with him and let none of the words fall to the ground. In other words, that means everything Samuel said come to pass, which means he's listening to the Lord. What Samuel had to learn how to do in 1 Samuel 3 is he had to learn how to hear God. But notice how this ends. And all of Israel from Dem, that's the farthest north, to Beersheba, that's the farthest south, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then, then, the Lord appeared again. Shalom. Shiloh, I remind you, is where the tabernacle is. It's where the priests were serving. It's where the people would go to worship. For the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now here, as we're cracking open the word here, you know, here's the danger, and you know this, the, even Scripture tells us that knowledge puffs up. If all we get is knowledge, what we'll become is heady, pompous, bloated Irritable, proud people. But love edifies. And if I take this handbook to learn how to love, how to love you, how to love my family, how to love God, I can't lose. I had the privilege a couple days ago of sitting, actually, I guess it was yesterday sitting and talking to the owner and a couple workers at a local pizza place, actually down by Tottenham Court Road. And as I'm starting to share, I'm wearing my Jesus shirt. You know, we have him here, the Jesus full stop. And the gal comes and she tells me, she's like, you are so brave. And I've never, that's never occurred to me that this was a brave act. She goes, I bet you get a lot of responses from him. And you know, he said, yeah, most of them not very pleasant. And we talked about what it means to love someone and how to be bold. You can't be silent about someone you love. You've got to come out with it. But I remember something that really struck me in the midst of all of this is, is that she asked, So do you, like, really try to live your life by the Bible? And she looked perplexed like she'd never met anyone that's been like that. And it's, I felt like it was one of those moments where you're redeeming something again. And when someone says, are you religious? And you say, yeah, yes I am. And it blows, they blow all of their circuits because what they thought was religious, you don't fit in. And I don't mean that in a sense that you can't reconcile you to Scripture. I'm saying that in the sense that what they thought religious was was something so evil, so horrible, so bad. Because the movies, let's face it, the moment a guy quotes a Scripture, he's probably going to murder everyone else on the screen. And it was cool to say, you know what? I've never been sorry for doing so. I do want to live like the way God calls me to. I took it a step ago. I actually want to live like my church and my family would expect me to. I go, but I can't in and of myself, but God can through me. Praise God for His Spirit. Well, tonight as we go to prayer, what if when we open His Word, we said, God, speak? Because please hear me in this. Do you know why people communicate with you? Because they want a relationship with you. When they really communicate. When they just talk at you, they might be selling something. But when they communicate with you, they want a relationship with you. And you hear that because when relationships go awry, it's always the first thing that comes up. Well, one of the first things. We don't communicate. We can't communicate. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. So you can't communicate how you don't communicate. Yeah. Well, this is going to be easy. That's kind of like, where does it hurt? I don't know. Just hurts. That's gonna be a little harder to get at. Because we know that our relationship suffers if we can't communicate. But what is it like to communicate with God? Here's the cool thing. You know you can just kind of dump it all on the table and God's gonna be able to sort through it. That's the you know you can do that. You know you don't have to be eloquent or gifted or Try to make it something in iambic pentameter or speaking King James for God to understand you. You can just say, God, I'm wicked, I'm flipping, uh, whatever, and you know, and you just use whatever terms, and you know, God knows, He he speaks your language, He knows what's going on. But have you ever had anyone sit down because they really wanted to talk to you, and you kind of gave them one ear, one eye, and you know, or you start sharing with, talking to someone, and it's really something, and you want to get you know there's something behind the roll up here that's going to be intimate and then they like start texting and you're like okay we're done that ain't going to happen now and i don't say that because god ever does that to us i say that because i do it to him it's like god i really want you to speak deep and beautiful things and but then i don't even give him the time to speak I find myself these days going to places like Greenwich a lot. And one of the reasons is is that there's something kind of quiet about it. And I can actually find spots where I can get really quiet with the Lord and be like, Lord, if you don't say anything right now, that's okay. I just want you to know I'm giving you time to say something. Because if you don't schedule a lot of time for something like that, chances are you won't be ready to hear it when he wants to speak. And I've learned that from being married. If I were awake really late at night, no talk would happen. But the moment I start falling asleep, something strange happens to my wife, and she's like, zing! Now it's time! And I'm like, oh. And I want to hear. But the sandman's like beating me in the face. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like kind of, doing this, and every chance she's not looking, I'm pinching myself or something. Because this is important. And often that's because I'm not actually setting aside the time that I need to hear when it actually could be. When I could be awake and ready. But for the Lord, does He have to wake me up in the middle of the night for that? Well, what do you think He would tell me? I'm confident He'd tell me that He loves me. How about you? And then he's glad I'm his. Well, what if he had something that he was saying that wasn't right? Well, then it's a good thing I'm hearing him. Because if he's going to make the change, I want to be able to be thankful for it. The only time I really don't want to hear God is when I know I'm walking in rebellion. Because I know what he's going to say and I don't want to hear it. But that should never be my heart. Oh, that God would slay that in all of us. In past times and in various ways, God has spoken to us through the prophets. But in these days, He's spoken to us. In these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. The greatest statement that God has and will ever make has been made on the cross. Where God's like, I couldn't love you more than this. There's no love greater than this. And when you want to know if I love you, look to this. Where my son died on the cross to pay for your sins when you hated him. When you mocked him, you pointed and laughed. And he rose again and says, now I want a relationship with you. Let me talk to you. And as we say yes and we walk with him tonight even, may God speak to us tonight. I mean, I expect when we open the Word for God to speak to us. I expect Him to speak to me. I've never been disappointed. But I want Him to speak to me at all points. I don't want to ever stop the conversation. And I want that for you too. Would you pray for me? Lord I thank you for the way that you speak to us. I do thank you, Lord, that even here now as you continue to push us forward, Lord, that we would that we would see God that you really want us to know you. And I pray, Lord, for anyone whose appetite for your word has cooled, that you give us a fresh hunger for your word a really fresh hunger for Your Word. Not just so we can get information. We don't want to be puffed up. But rather so that we could know You better. And really, to know us better in You. And the call You've placed in our lives. Oh God, that we would know all that better. And Lord, I just pray that even tonight, that we'll become so familiar with your voice that if you were to call us by name tonight, we would know who it is and we would be able to say, Oh, Lord, please speak. Your servant's listening. So make us such servants, I pray. I love you, Lord, and I thank you so much for what you're doing here. Please lead us now. Jesus, we know you died for us and we want to say thank you. We want to thank you for the statement you made by the price you paid on the cross. And we want to thank you for offering us new life at your resurrection, Father. Thank you for enduring the suffering of watching your son pay our price. Thank you for raising him from the dead. Oh, please strengthen, deepen, galvanize our relationships with You. And speak and give us ears and hearts and eyes. But give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are so open to You. Please, forgive us, God, for we don't want to listen because we know what You're going to say. That only shows our rebellious heart. Slay that heart, God, I pray. Forgive us, God, for where we think that you should be speaking a certain way, Lord, because we're so caught up in what we think should happen. But you're speaking in a way we won't listen because we know because it's directing us in a place that we don't want to go. Forgive us, God, for where we give you a half an ear and a half a moment and wonder why you haven't spoken profoundly to us. And even tonight, change that. Give us quiet times with You that are so beautiful and so deep and so rich. Please. May our prayers become dialogue, not just monologue. Not where we talk at You, but with You. And thank You for the offer. Make that so now, I pray, for each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen.